Um, right, good morning. Um, why go running? That's what I want to start with. Why go running is a question that I ask myself most weeks. And my routine is that on a Monday morning, I go for a run. And so Monday mornings, which normally are a pretty tough part of the week, um, begin for me with this great cloud of doom hanging over me. And I ask, why bother? Why go running? This week, I thought I'd ask Google that question. Why go running? The first um, option that came up is from a website called the Running Bee Foundation. Uh, why go running? Top of the list, skincare. It's not going to get me out the door on a Monday morning. Uh, so I went to the next one. Ne- ne- next website, I don't know what it was, but the top of that list, reasons to go running, you visit the doctor less. I, I don't often visit the doctor, so again, that's not going to get me out the front door. So, so I went down again. The next website, top of the list, was a bit more general. Um, the reasons to go running, it improves your health. Okay, I can probably work with that a little bit. I generally tell myself, if I don't go running, I will die, and so therefore, get out of the door. Um, However much I hate it, which I do, and I like to talk about how much I hate it, I know it is good for me, Um, and so I put myself through that weekly torture routine. Uh, I've discovered, and it may be the case for you, that not everybody feels the same. Uh, Speaking to a friend this week who's not been well, but uh, hasn't been able to run for a bit, but he's a bit better, so he's able to go running, and he's so excited about being able to run again. He loves running. Total madness. And there are two approaches to running. My approach, I'm not in it for the running. Uh, I I hate the running part. I'm in it for all the benefits that come. And my friend, however, he likes the benefits, but really, most of all, he just enjoys running. So what I want us to think about this morning is this. Are you glad to have Jesus in your life? Are you glad to have Jesus in your life? No, you just want to keep saying to Jesus. Maybe you do find yourself just keeping on saying to Jesus, Jesus, I'm just so glad that you are with me. Or is it more like me and running? You might be glad about some of the benefits that come from knowing Jesus Um, But you couldn't really say you're glad about Jesus himself. Uh, Why am I asking this? Well, we have been uh, picking our way through John's gospel for a bit of time. We've come to chapter 6. It's a long chapter. Uh, It's a chapter that begins with a miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And the rest of the chapter, Jesus is explaining and talking about um, the the miracle. We're going to spend a few weeks in chapter 6. But today we're looking at the action part of the passage. And then next week, we'll come to the analysis. So we're looking at verses 1 to 21. And what we have in these verses is this feeding miracle. Then we have the response of the crowd. They want to make Jesus king. And then we have Jesus scaring his disciples witless by walking to them on the water. And all these bits, they all come together. They're connected. And and the way that John's told it, and the bit we're looking at today, ends in verse 21. And in verse 21, it says, Then... They were willing to take him into the boat. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And it grabbed my attention for two reasons. First reason is that when it says to take Jesus, that that little phrase is really at the heart of everything John wants to say about Jesus. So you see, right back when John begins writing his book about the life of Jesus, he introduces it in chapter one by speaking about the whole event of Christ in the world like this. I put it on the screen for us. Um, This is how John describes it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. 
He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John writes about Jesus coming into the world, not being recognized for who he is, but he says those who do recognize him, believe in him. And he says that means they receive him. They receive him. They receive Jesus. And, and that receiving of Jesus is the word in chapter 621 used to say the disciples received Jesus into the boat. You see, in, in this chapter 6, John wants us to think about things in a particular way. The way he's written about the feeding miracle, he's done it in a particular way. Verse 6, he asks Philip how they can feed the huge crowd, and we're told he does it to test him. The whole thing is a test for the disciples. The test, do the disciples recognize Jesus for who he really is? The end of the passage, we see they do recognize him and they receive him. Uh, the other bit, though, that grabbed my attention uh, in verse 21 is how the disciples receive Jesus. It says, then they were willing. Then they really wanted Jesus with them. Uh, the English Standard Version says, then they were glad. Uh, they didn't begrudgingly receive Jesus, not like me and running. No, I probably should do it because it's good for me. I probably should receive Jesus. It's probably good for me. No, they're so glad to have Jesus in their lives. You know, for us as, as Christians, we come together or we come to church and we, we talk about receiving Jesus, talk about believing in him. Well, when it comes to what it actually means, though, we get a bit tangled up, I think. And, and I think this passage just gives just, just one way to understand a bit more of what it means to receive Jesus. One of the things it means to receive Jesus is to receive him gladly. And we're going to think how this passage helps us receive Jesus gladly into our lives and some of the reasons we might not do that very easily. So first of all, why receive Jesus gladly? Now we're going to start at the end of the passage, verse 21. The disciples receive Jesus gladly because in verse 20, he's just said, it is I. It's me, here I am, he says. Um, well, the events in this passage, I think, uh, kind of invest that self-revelation with particular shades of meaning. Who is this Jesus who reveals himself? What is he like? Well, one of the shades of meaning comes in the storm. Verse 16 tracks the disciples. They move away from the scene of the feast. They get back into the boat. They're crossing the lake, and it's a huge lake. Uh, and the going gets tough, and, and it's in the dark, we're told, and this storm begins to brew, and the waters grew rough. And we're told they managed to go about three or four miles. It's a big lake. And, and as they've gone about so far battling in the storm, and it's dark, they see Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. This is unusual. It doesn't happen. Now, now, you can respond to unusual things in different ways, can't you? You might see a, a, a magician perform some trick and you think, that, that, that's unusual. I've never seen that before. I wonder how he did it. I could be intrigued by it. Or, or, or you might see something else that's unusual, but it's amazing. You think, wow, look at that. That's amazing. The disciples don't do that. Their response is terror. They are frightened. What they see makes them feel that they are in danger. You see, these are men who live in a world 
where the stormy sea represents the dangerous and chaotic things of life. Uh, the, The stormy sea represents the way that badness messes with all the good things. The uncertainty. The sea was bad. And a stormy sea means the badness is beginning to stir. And in this stormy sea, they see a figure appear on the water coming for them. They see, as it were, kind of chaos is manifested into a person who is coming after them. And the figure speaks, the figure on the wave speaks and says, it is I. They would have recognized the voice probably before they could even see who it was because it's so dark. But they recognize the voice and they know it's Jesus. Jesus emphatically saying, It is I. Very ordinary way of saying, it's me, here I am. And yet if somebody says, it is I, and they're standing on the waves, it's the end of the school term and lots of schools are having sports days at the moment. Um, If a child at a sports day says, I'm the winner, we say, well done to the child, they've won something at their sports day, yeah. If somebody is standing on the track of the Olympic Games and says, I'm the winner, they are claiming to be the Olympic champion, which is a greater thing than a sports day winner, isn't it? Where you are when you say things makes a difference to what it means. And so when Jesus stands on the sea and says, I am, that reverberates with shockwaves through the whole of Bible history. You track it all the way back thousands of years to when Moses stood before the burning bush and he asked God, who shall I say is sending me? And God says, you tell them, I am who I am. I am is sending you. And when Job in his agony is trying to get his head around the the terrible majesty of God, he says, He alone, God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. It's only God who walks on the water. And the psalmist sings, saying, The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. When God comes on the water, it shows he's coming in battle. Not, Not in battle to attack the disciples. It shows that God Almighty is in battle against the forces of darkness. God isn't coming as a threat to the disciples. No, God is coming to take away anything and everything that might ever possibly threaten them. God is fighting for them. Uh, In our other Sunday morning series, we're going through Isaiah. Uh, One day, we might get to Isaiah 51. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, In Isaiah 51, it celebrates celebrates the Lord's victory over monsters of chaos and evil. It says the Lord will triumph over the sea. And then it says... Those the Lord rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. That's what God says. I am. I am the one who comforts you. No, this, the everlasting joy and gladness that overtakes and sorrow that flees is all a way of showing that what it means to have God himself with you as your comfort. 
And so in John 6, we've got Jesus walking on the water, saying, I am. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Not, not simply because he is I am, but because he is I am coming to them. He is I am approaching them so that when he's with them, they have him. The one who is indestructible happiness. And so the disciples receive Jesus gladly. They're so glad to have him in their lives. I wonder about you. Are you glad to have Jesus in your life? Do you just keep saying to him, Jesus, I'm so glad that you are with me. Who is this Jesus who reveals himself? One shade of meaning comes in the storm. The other shade comes in the feast. Now, all the four gospel writers include the feeding of the 5,000, and each one draws attention to different details. Uh, John just straight away wants us to get us thinking about this test Jesus sets for the disciples. The crowd are approaching, he says. Jesus turns to Philip. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Jesus already knows what he's going to do. But Philip, he thinks about the question. He gives an answer. Then Andrew chips in. He says, there's this boy. He's got his lunch with him. If we weren't so familiar, we'd probably laugh out loud at this point. Now, again, end of year, school trips in my mind. Um, Imagine that there's a a school class going on a trip. Just imagine that they were going down to London to go to a museum and maybe see a show. And they're waiting at school for the coach to arrive. And the time for the coach to arrive comes, and there is no coach. And the teachers, just imagining, teachers start to panic. Can you imagine that? They start to panic. There's a bit of tension around. What are we going to do? How are we going to get all these children to London? And as a child, he puts up his hand and he says, Sir, Miss, whoever it is, um, I-, I brought my scooter today. We-, we could try that. It's not going to do, is it? That's what's happening here. 5,000 people to feed. And Andrew says, this boy, he's got a few bread rolls. But Jesus doesn't laugh. He takes the bread makes the crowd sit and gives thanks and then he distributes it and somehow, only God knows how, the meager meal stretches and stretches and the people eat and eat and they eat as much as they like, verse 11, as much as they wanted. And then their tummies are full, they stretch back on the grass. But Jesus doesn't forget, it's a test for the disciples. So he says to the disciples, you need to go and collect all the leftovers because it's a test. Not, not simply that... that that Jesus creates a feast from nothing. That's mind-boggling, right? That's only something God can do. But the test isn't simply that he multiplies the lunch. The test is that there is so much left over at the end. Now, Jesus really wants the disciples to get all the pieces so that nothing is left, nothing is lost. They get it all together. They stack it up in these 12 huge baskets so they can look at it and say, even what is left at the end far exceeds what was available at the start. It is an abundant provision, massively abundant. Jesus provides far, far more than what was needed. And there's the test. Do the disciples recognize Jesus for who he really is? Now, Jesus, of course, is showing he is God. It's a a creation miracle here. Uh, But back in John 5, uh, Jesus said, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And he got in trouble with the Jewish leaders because they rightly understood he was making himself equal to God. God the Father, God the Son do the same things because they're both God. Uh, But Jesus wants that to 
to be brought into a sharper focus, wants to see some clearer detail. And maybe the little clue comes in verse 11. Verse 11 says, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated. Now, that giving thanks before food was just a standard practice. But, but think about what is happening here. Here we have God the Son giving thanks to God the Father. Here, God the Son is acknowledging this meal that comes is a gift from God the Father. This abundance is the Father's gift. Now, when you read through John's Gospel, you find that he is at pains to show the ultimate gift from the Father is the gift of the Son. Now, back in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his greatest gift, his one and only Son. Jesus himself is the gift of God, God himself given to us. And the gift of the Son is a gift of massive abundance. Now, the feasting miracle shows that Jesus is a gift to us that far exceeds our deepest needs. The gift, the feeding miracle shows that we can fill up on Jesus and be wonderfully satisfied and he won't run out. We can't use him up. And Jesus is so full that he meets our every need. And he meets our every need with such abundance, good, abundant goodness. He doesn't just match our need. He swallows our need up completely. He's always far, far more than we will ever need. And he's the one given to us. So in verse 19, when Jesus comes to the disciples and says, I am, it's me. He's saying, I am the one who comes to you. So you don't need to be afraid because I am the abundant, never failing, never running out gift of God's endless goodness to you. And so the disciples receive Jesus gladly. They're so glad to have this Jesus in their lives. What about you? Are you glad that Jesus is in your life? You keep saying to him, Jesus, I'm so glad that you are with me. The disciples receive Jesus gladly. They're so happy he's in their lives. And I think the passage gives some great reasons why that was so. But it's not always that easy. We know that. The disciples know that. And maybe we come together on a Sunday and it's, it's easier to say on a Sunday here, Jesus, I'm so glad that you're with me. And we mean it, don't we? But we wake up on a Monday morning and we've got to go for a run. The world seems like a different place, doesn't it? Or we wake up in the middle of the night and the worries are all clouding in, and the being glad that Jesus is there seems so far, so distant. See, I think this passage also gives some reasons why we might not receive Jesus so gladly. Now, you, you, you open up your email. In fact, you, you're going through your spam folder for some bizarre reason. You find this email there, and it's got... Kind of, it's all kind of clouded out in red because of your security software, but you ignore all of that because this message is amazing. The grammar may not be very good, the spanning may not be very good, but the message is amazing because you haven't ever heard of the person who sent you the email, but they're going to give you some money, loads of money, thousands and thousands of pounds, and you get so excited. All you have to do is send them your bank details, um, and they're going to transfer the money straight over to you. And your adrenaline begins to run, and you think, I'm going to throw a little party. I've really made it now. I can, I can, I don't know, buy a new house or something. Great. Do you do any of that? No, 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 please don't do any of that. 
please don't. You don't feel happy at all at that good news. You feel the opposite of happiness. You feel annoyed. You get angry because you know it's an empty promise. It's a scam. Someone's trying to trick you, trip you up. You don't receive it gladly. Thing is, though, we can treat all good news with suspicion, can't we? That's what experience teaches us. Experience teaches us there's always a catch. You can never have a free lunch. No, it's like the man who stood in the middle of London giving out the flyers which say, um, if you return this flyer to me, I will give you five pounds in cash. And, and he gave out thousands and thousands of them, but like, like barely a handful of people came back. They didn't think it was real. Well, why bother? There's always going to be a catch. You see, there are, there are ideas that just get stuck in our minds, ways of thinking, often unspoken perhaps. But they sit in us and they corrode our happy confidence in Jesus. And they mean we don't receive him gladly. We're not able to say that we are glad that he's in our lives. And I think this passage touches on two such ideas. We see one of the ideas when we look at the way the disciples respond to Jesus' test. At the beginning of the passage, Jesus is there sitting on the mountainside. His disciples are there. This great crowd of people comes towards them, and Jesus says to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? And Jesus asks a where question. What is going to be the source of provision? And Philip answers the where question with a can we afford it answer. Now, it's like if I would say to you, where can, I, where can I buy a Ferrari? Where can we buy a Ferrari? And instead of saying, I looked this up on the internet, you have to go to Dick Lovett in Swindon, which is a Ferrari dealer. don't know if it's the nearest one, but it is a Ferrari dealer. So if you want to get a Ferrari, you go there. No, Philip, Philip doesn't say you need to go there. He says, we can't afford a Ferrari. That's what he gets out in verse 7. Literally, he says, I don't know, 200 denarii is what he says. 200 days wages. That's a lot of money, he says. I'm going to think about this great sum of money, an unimaginable sum of money really for us. And that's not enough. Now, even if we had a load of cash, it wouldn't be enough. Now, the whole idea of feeding this crowd is bonkers. You see what Philip is doing here? Now, Philip is, is focusing on the size of the problem. And Philip, Philip, Philip is focusing on the size of the problem. And as he focuses on the size of the problem, what he misses is he misses Jesus out of his calculations. Now, he fixes on the problem, and he decides nothing can be done. You see, Jesus doesn't say to Philip, where can you get enough? That's not his question, is it? His question is, where can we get enough? He's not excluding himself. Uh, Andrew comes at it from a different angle. Uh, Andrew speaks up. Um, his, his contribution to the discussion is that there is this boy with the five loaves and the two fish. And Andrew says, I've got a boy and he's got this little bit of a mount. And then he says, but how far will they go among so many? And, and Andrew's point seems to be, uh, this crowd cannot be fed because all we have is this one boy's lunch. Our supply is ridiculously tiny compared to the need. Uh, Philip fixes on the size of the problem. Andrew fixes on the limits of the resources. Both of them miss Jesus. And and I guess with both of them, there's that seed of an unspoken idea that Jesus can't provide what is needed. 
That's the kind of idea that drains away our gladness. We're not going to receive Jesus gladly if the only thing we do is obsess over the size of the problem or the limits of our resources. And yet we all do that, don't we? Now, like, like that passage I mentioned from Isaiah, a passage that speaks of everlasting joy crowning their heads, gladness and joy overtaking them, sorrow and sighing, fleeing away. But that's so far from our experience. Even our best experience falls short of that. So we think it's not going to happen. And we think it's not going to happen because we start to list all the reasons why it's not going to happen. The world is so messed up. And my own sin is too big. Or my ability to change stuff is so minuscule. It's almost laughable. The sadness in my heart is too much a part of me. Just a struggle to manage through another day or the loneliness that gnaws and gnaws and gnaws or, or maybe the loss that I've experienced. It is all too much and everlasting joy and sorrow fleeing away. It's a nice idea, but quite frankly, the problem is too big and my resources are too small. And we miss that Jesus never says, you must make this happen. But what about we? No, with Jesus with the abundant, never-failing gift of God himself. It doesn't matter how big the problem is or how small our resources is. The only thing that matters is Jesus. You see, there are ideas that lodge in our minds that mean we won't receive Jesus gladly. Uh, I think we see another of those ideas when we think about the crowd and their response. Starts really at the beginning. In verse 2, we're told the whole reason the crowd are coming is because they saw the signs Jesus performed by healing those who were ill. That's why they come. They come and they get fed. And when they get fed, the crowd, they're not silly. They understand that the meal has a meaning. Verse 14, the people saw the sign Jesus had performed. It's not just a miraculous meal. It tells something. And what they think it tells is this. They say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, now the background to this, again, you need to go back to the times of Moses, back to Deuteronomy 18. And Moses spoke of the coming of a prophet like him, indicating that after Moses had gone, God would, would send a succession of faithful prophets who would teach God's word to the people. And yet by the time that Jesus was around, that expectation of a prophet like Moses had been invested with messianic meaning. Now people spoke of this prophet like Moses who would do what Moses did. Moses who led the people out of oppression into freedom and established an independent nation. So when the people see Jesus doing the feeding miracle, they think, ah, Moses was linked to a great feeding miracle. The manna sent to the children of Israel in the wilderness. This sign must mean Jesus is the prophet. And so therefore Jesus can do the things that Moses did. He can deliver us from oppression, bring us to freedom, and establish an independent nation once more. So they're about to force Jesus to be king. It's a strange kind of kingship, isn't it? No, a king forced by the people. That kind of shows the power isn't with the king, is it? The king is being forced to do what the people want. Now, at this time, the whole land was under the Roman rule. It was only the emperor who could appoint kings, which he did, puppet kings around his empire. If the crowd were to make Jesus king, it was an open act of defiance. It was a, at the beginning of an uprising. Now, now, I think if the crowd had seen right, clearly, 
They would see the feeding miracle doesn't make Jesus to be a prophet like Moses, but to be the God who raises a prophet like Moses. But the real telling phrase is the crowd want to make him king by force. And the word there is they wanted to seize him. They don't want to receive him as he is. They want to seize him to make him what they want him to be. And, and the thing is, it's easy to do that. In fact, everybody likes Jesus, really. You, you push people enough. People like Jesus. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist um, who loves to attack the Christian faith and all religion, um, he advocates a movement called Atheists for Jesus. He wants to have T-shirts printed with that as a slogan on it. And he wrote this many years ago. He wrote, I think we owe Jesus the honor of separating his genuinely original and radical ethics from the supernatural nonsense that he inevitably espoused as a man of his time. It's a weird idea, isn't it? We can honor Jesus by dismantling everything he stood for and remaking him to suit our own purposes. It's the definition of abuse, isn't it? We honor him by abusing him. But in a sense, everyone likes Jesus. As long as we get to define the remit of his rule. We like Jesus as long as he's the kind of king that we want him to be. A kind of king, maybe, who turns a blind eye to our pet sins. We like a Jesus whose rule doesn't stretch into everything we do. The kind of king who doesn't actually have any power at all, where we can keep control over him. We like the kind of Jesus who means we can still decide what we do with our lives and our resources and our relationships. And when I was at university, my, my friends, my non-Christian friends, brought me um, a Jesus action figure. It was pretty cool. I'm not quite sure what I've done with it. Um, they, they thought this was hilarious. Um, but, but that's the kind of Jesus we're comfortable with, the kind of Jesus we can shape and control to do whatever we like or just leave in a box and forget about. Now, if we have the idea that Jesus is to be seized to fit with our lives, a puppet king, we claim him by name, we call ourselves Christians, sing about him on a Sunday, but the rest of our lives are ours to live as we please. That's the, the opposite of receiving him gladly. It's the idea of seizing and abusing him. And the crowd want Jesus to be their king. And what happens in verse 15? Jesus withdraws from them. He was a king, but he's not the kind of king the crowd wanted him to be. In fact, I don't know if you notice verse 4. John puts in this little remark. It feels a bit out of place, really. At the beginning, he says, the Jewish Passover festival was near. John wants the, the shadow of the Passover to fall over these events. Because Jesus is not the kind of king who ferments a rebellion against the Romans. He's the kind of king who comes as the Passover lamb. As John 1.31 says, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At John 3.16, he is the gift of God who ensures that all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, this king comes to fight, but the battle he comes to fight is not against the Roman oppressors. It's a battle to take away sin so he can rescue his people to be with him forever. And it's a battle that he would fight and win by dying and rising. Now, if you want Jesus just just be an, an example of how to live nicely, or, or you're some kind of good luck charm, if you want to pick and choose what part of your life Jesus can or can't be involved in, and you want to keep charge of things for yourself, Jesus isn't interested in being that kind of king. 
If that's all you want, he will withdraw from you. But if you're willing to receive him as the one who dies for your sin, to rescue you from the wrath of God and bring you to eternal joy with him, if you're willing to receive him as the king with absolute authority over all your life, he will come to you. Now we will not receive him gladly if we're not willing to receive him as he is. The crowd want Jesus on their terms. And Jesus withdrew from them. And then immediately our attention goes to the storm. Jesus walking on the water declaring who he is. He is who he is. I am. And the disciples recognize him and they receive him gladly. They receive him as he is and he comes to them. And so what about you here this morning? Do you want to have Jesus in your life and receive him as he is? Are you glad to have Jesus in your life? Now maybe, it, maybe even now at this point your heart just wavers a little on that. And just consider again the disciples in the storm. In verse 17, John tells us it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. It was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A dark is, John often talks of darkness as a way of picturing the world at its worst. These disciples are in the dark and the storm begins to stir and Jesus is not with them. It's a situation for all people. We're in the dark. John says we love the darkness because our deeds are evil. And then the storm begins to blow and our fears begin to rise. And then John speaks of the light that shines into the darkness. And Jesus comes to the disciples and he speaks his tender words of comfort. It is I. You don't need to be afraid. And then they are so glad to receive him, so glad to have him in their lives. And Jesus is the same always. And he comes to us as the great I am. He is the Lord of the storm and in himself he is the gift of God's abundant, never failing goodness. He is the true king who lays down his life for all who trust him. And takes away their sin and guarantees by his indestructible life that he will carry them through this life into the imperishable bliss of eternity ahead. The same Jesus comes to us and says, it is I. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid because Jesus is here. You don't need to be afraid because there is no darkness that is too deep. There are no waves that are too high. There's no sea that is too wide for him to find you. And to be with you in the midst and never to leave you and never to fail you. So the disciples receive Jesus gladly. They're so glad to have this Jesus in their lives. Are you glad to have Jesus in your life? just want to keep saying, Jesus, I'm so glad that you are with me. And, and saying it specifically. Now, as, as we go into this week ahead, we don't know what will happen. And when things fall apart, will we say, Jesus, I'm so glad you're with me in this. Or, or when things come together, or when things are just things, like the bad things, the brilliant things, the boring things. Say, Jesus, I'm so glad you're with me in this. You might remember the old, old chorus, uh, with Christ in the vessel, you can smile at the storm. I don't know how true that is, really. You might weep at the storm. You might rage at the storm, but you can turn to Jesus and say, I'm so glad that you're with me in this. So you see, in verse 21, it says, when Jesus is in the boat, immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. 
See, when Jesus is in the boat, it doesn't matter if the storm is raging or not. His presence makes certain the boat will reach its destination. And Jesus is with us. And when Jesus is with us, we can be sure he will be with us all the way home. And on the way, we can keep saying to him, Jesus, I'm so glad you're with me in this. What about you? Are you glad that Jesus is in your life? Why don't you take a moment to speak to him about that?